Welcome to the Conversion Tracking Playbook, where we share how to overcome tracking challenges that e-commerce brands face today and real-world examples of transforming data into insights. Welcome back to another episode of the Conversion Tracking Playbook. I'm your host, Brad Redding. We have a special guest today that will help us get into the weeds here on the the privacy first future. So this person has, I won't, won't name names yet, but has, well, I guess you read the title, so you know who he is, Muhammad. But we've uh, had a couple of mutual customers over the years, and you have a very vast experience in the world of data, especially privacy, and wanted to bring you on just to like unpack that, peel that onion back a little bit of, of really what does the quote unquote privacy first future mean for growth and digital marketers. So we've got a bunch of different topics that we're gonna we're gonna hammer through here today. But Muhammad, thanks for joining. Yeah, of course. Appreciate it, Brad. It's it's great to be here. Excited to dive in. Yeah. So give everyone like a you know 15, 30 second overview and then we'll dig right in. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Muhammad, as, as Brad sort of mentioned. I'm a marketer and a product guru myself in a combination between sort of media buying and execution and ultimately building product to help automate a lot of the things that, that happen for a media buyer in their day-to-day. So I'm the co-founder and CEO here at Notice.io, which I'm sure we'll, we'll sprinkle in uh, throughout the conversation, but just really excited and I've enjoyed the podcast and I'm a listener myself. So looking forward to hopefully contributing, helping the viewership a little bit if there's any uh, wisdom I can lend. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So let's get into preparing media buyers for a privacy first future. So I'm just going to tee that one up. And what when you read that, where does your head go? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind before we even get into preparation is there's sort of a lot of angst in the space. I think a lot of folks know that they should be worried about something. That's sort of the extent that a lot of the media coverage has sort of hit on. So if you're a marketer, if you're a brand, if you if you manage an agency and you keep up with the news, even if a lot of it's going over your head, you know that there are a lot of changes coming from the likes of Google, Facebook, and Apple, of course. And so I think first and foremost, when I think of sort of the media, the media privacy future, there's a lot of just sort of settling down and really getting back into sort of what got us here as an industry, which is beyond the fear and what may happen to my campaigns and and more into the tactical of, of how can I solve this. I think the industry has made a lot of progress over the last couple of years and really starting to put pen to paper on what a new tracking framework will look like. But for folks in the space, I think the biggest thing for me that comes to mind is there are solutions out there. The media buying world looks so different now than it did five, 10 years ago. And similarly, in the next five years, this will this will be a part of the natural change, and so it will look different. And I think for folks like yourselves at Elevar, a, a big part of I'm sure what your mission is, is is just helping folks to get a good handle on what's needed to really track. And, and for us here at Notice, it's you know get helping folks get a handle of what they need to do in terms of transforming and modeling their data. And ultimately, while the decision making process will look a lot different, the levers will look very different as the privacy landscape really shifts underneath us. I think a lot of the core tenants of marketing getting in front of the right people, showing them the right message still remain true. It's really just getting into the nitty-gritty and the tactical of how do we actually do that? And most importantly, establish visibility on what our efforts are generating uh, when folks see our ads, click our ads, and, and ultimately make their decisions online. That was a big, big loaded answer, but let's unpack that. So you mentioned, I mean, I, the way I kind of took that is nothing's really going to change. We're still going to have to market, but how we go through the process of analyzing data that might be or is going to be limited modeling that data out to try to predict or make a partial data set whole. Let's just talk about that. So what can you describe? What does that mean? How does it work? So if you have a partial data set today where you are either missing just general tracking or maybe a device data, if you're doing that type of analysis, 
what does that look like? Like, how are you, how are you modeling that data out and what type of picture are you trying to paint? Yeah, I think it's important to start with where we were. And I think for the industry as a whole, a lot of what, what needs to change is sort of the, the habits and the ways in which we track users. But, you know, if we rewind a few years back, um, a lot of folks were doing things on a user by user level. I and mean, the industry was sort of built to support that. So you had things like the IDFA or the identifier for advertising on iOS platforms. And you could track a user from an ad viewed all the way through to the actions they were they were taking on your app really one-to-one and Apple had sort of designed their framework in a way to help support that. And similarly with a slightly different function on the website of things, whether mobile or desktop web, pixels were an extremely effective way to track a user more or less from the moment they touched your site until they actually took uh, the action you care about. And that was really reliable for a lot of browsers. There weren't stringent lookbacks. There weren't limitations on how far back you could look or how far back you could track a user via pixel. Really quick, just make sure those listening and following along, what you mean by that is the cookie, like your cookie look back. So a couple of years ago, there was no 24-hour expiration or seven-day expiration. You Essentially, Facebook or anyone else, whatever they want to set it, whether it was 90 days or five years, those expiration dates were being respected by the browsers and not being forcefully reset. So that's, that's what you meant, right? Yeah, I appreciate you clarifying, Brad. So the spirit of, of look back, whether it's an IDFA, so an anonymized user ID, or whether it's a cookie that persists on a user's browser, uh, was really robust. But I think naturally, as the industry gets smarter, a lot of what was being done with those cookies, those IDFAs, was honest marketing. It was really clever stuff, and it was helping the user find products that mattered for them. But a lot of stuff was also a little bit nefarious. And I think naturally, um, as users mature in their online buying activity, there was also this spirit of not wanting to get roped up as a Google or Facebook or an Apple in this notion of being a big brother. And so I think what we've seen in the space today is um, now there are limitations really wherever you look, whether it's device or browser. On the Apple side, they've given the control to the user. And I think in a lot of ways, the reason that advertisers have felt hindered, and and you mentioned partial data sets, I think the reason that data sets have started to fall apart on the iOS side is users aren't necessarily educated in what's being done with their data. And so you give them a prompt like, do you want to be tracked? wherever you go, and naturally, they're going to opt out. And I think that's a natural user behavior for us on the marketing side. We know the really helpful things that we can do to customize and personalize, but it's difficult to do that with a user who doesn't have full education. And so what we see today, and, and I was really close to the rollout of iOS 14, where this prompt was was essentially passed along to the user to decide. And apps, uh, advertisers were given a blurb of something like, you know, 100 characters to essentially explain what it was that they were doing with that user's data. And I think what we found and what a lot of advertisers are experiencing today is a partial data set is a partial data set. And often the most challenging thing is if you don't know if it's 90% accurate or 50% accurate, your trust is is lost all the same in the quality of the data that you have and making major decisions, you know, how much money to spend, uh, how much you want to re-engage with people. Those are the types of decisions that have really meaningful impacts on the future of a company. And so on the iOS side, maybe to wrap that piece up, I think we're we find ourselves today is the industry has to move to a more aggregated structure. Users have to be coupled into broad groups to track really anything. And we'll get into the tactical of, of how we recommend doing that, some of the ways that we've managed to do that here in this is sort, of, sort of new wave. But I'll quickly also hit on what I think is the majority of the industry today, which is really uh, buying, advertising, and ultimately hosting your website on some sort of browser where you alluded to it. The ability to cookie a user track a bunch of metadata about that user and then just follow them along the journey has been really limited because by nature, most sites don't have dozens of touch points with a user within a week or within a month. And that's really what these browsers have moved to is the cookie will persist and often it will refresh 
if the user comes back to your website within 24 hours, if it's on Safari, within seven days, if it's on Google Chrome, and it varies slightly, but it generally falls within that range for most browsers. But for a lot of advertisers, especially those in the commerce space who are selling you something, the journey is more anchored around how many times do you see that brand in the space. Maybe you click on an ad or you search their name up. And the nature of that user journey means that cookies are becoming less and less reliable because users look new. They look totally anonymous to us when they come back to our site. And often that journey is months, not days or, or weeks. And so we've seen that the, the current space today, really to track that user, you have to start delivering value and exchanging that value for identity. I and mean, obviously doing so in a responsible way, but collecting emails, collecting information about the user throughout the journey with some value prop for them, uh, like better site experience or like better recommendations, is really the only way to persist the user and understand what they're doing on your site over a long period of time. Because cookies alone and this sort of behind the backgrounds tracking is just, it's lost a lot of utility as browsers have really started to crack down. Okay. I've got a lot of thoughts on that because I, I agree. And we've talked about that aspect in this pod in the past. But going back to the model data, do, is that, so again, that you, you mentioned with whether it's 50%, 90%, is that something that someone needs to think about today? Like, hey, 50% of people that are coming back are being bucketed into new, even though they should be returning users. Are we to the point now where, brands doing 20, 30, 50 plus million, should they be thinking about, okay, I need to think about how to like pull my raw data and then build, like start modeling that data, putting in the groups? Or is that just, is that a massive topic in a five hour episode on its own? No, I, I think it, it could, the answer is yes to both. I think that it definitely could be a much longer topic. There's quite a bit to dive into tactically, but Certainly for, for brands that are operating at scale, I think we've hit that point of, of critical mass where, especially if there are meaningful differences in how you want to treat users, whether they're new or returning. I mean, often for a lot of brands, especially in the industries that you and I touch in, in sort of the e-commerce space, there is a meaningful difference in a user who is returning and how you would want to treat that user, streamline their, their conversion process and ultimately get them to be a repeating buyer for you versus a net new user who may need a lot more education. So I'll say the first thing is that the brand first has to do a little bit of introspection on how well set up are they today and how much effort and intentionality have they put into differentiating their experiences. If they are differentiating and they're really leaning on systems that will eventually become obsolete and even today are compromised, then certainly there needs to be a lot of work done on the server side or what I mean more tactically by that is in owned data and data that the brand can kind of transform itself. And by different experiences, sorry to, sorry to cut you off real quick, just so people listening can follow along, by different experiences, you're talking about the, their site. So someone that comes first time to the site, they're going to see one experience, maybe it's a gender, so I'll just use Viore, so men, female. If I come back, I'm coming back to the site and they know who I am, so I'm going to be served more of a an experience based on my purchase history versus if my wife is coming, she's going to see an experience maybe featuring more imagery that fits what, what she's looking for. Is that what you mean by different experiences? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for, for most brands, it really does start and stop on the website. For some brands, it, they do really tie in what they know about a user and how they re-engage them. So marketing, um, their their email communication with that user, really the, the element of retention also falls into play. But I would say for most brands, it's typically really about the site experience and how much more efficient and personalized can you make it for somebody like yourself or like your wife who that has already demonstrated interest and it's already demonstrated what they care about. And so representing them with the entire stack of hay is not as helpful of an experience for that user. So just to put a cap on this one, you got to the point where are you doing this today as a brand? So are you doing this bucketed personalization on your site today? If you are, then yes, it's probably worth going down the, the path of, okay, are we just bucketing people into the wrong experience because we just don't recognize them? But if, they're, if someone's not really doing that today, then 
maybe it's not worth going off this rabbit trail of modeling data and trying to figure out how to backport that into an experience. Did I get that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And then the second part, going back to a couple of minutes ago, what you're saying is the exchange of value to understand who the person is coming back. I'm 100% on board with that. So that is someone comes back to the site. It's almost like rewinding to the old guilt group and rulala days where you couldn't enter the sites without entering your email. So maybe not to that drastic approach, but that sounds like that's what you were suggesting, which I somewhat agree with, where maybe give people a little taste, like a sample of the site. But if they want to keep going in, then ask for an email, which... Everlane did this. They're not doing it today, I don't think. But do you remember on the product pages, they were they had a very it was built in the experience of like enter your email. So it was that it was like a 50-50 guilt group style. But anyways, yeah. So that that's what you're suggesting, right? Is the exchange of value for some information. Yeah, I think that's that's what it boils down to. There's sort of two sides of the coin. On one side, I think it's gonna be more drastic than the other. Uh, this is so, sort of less our target audience. And for a lot of folks listening, I'm sure they they aren't necessarily on the publisher side, but where I think it may get back to that level of extreme is publishers who are trying to help brands and advertisers to better target users are really bleeding right now. Without the ability to map a user across the experience, they lose in the person in the experience while the person is on the site, but they also lose as they're trying to externalize that user and ultimately sell those eyeballs, that attention to advertisers who may want to get in front of them. And I do think with how much the publisher side of the world today is, is really bleeding from a monetization perspective, we may see a much more common experience where to access certain content, especially content of sort of high value, that you may just have to enter your email before you can read anything, or, or maybe there's a very brief preview. For advertisers, the exchange is a little bit different because ultimately for the user, many users believe they're bringing the value. And in many ways, they're right. Like they're coming onto your website to purchase and just saying, you having the ability to purchase on my site is contingent on me knowing who you are may not be quite the value exchange. So I think there there may be other angles that brands take, such as um, recommendations, newsletters, maybe even not collecting something like an email address, but something more passive, like some user information the first time that they can map to a, an email address when it does become applicable and the user is sort of familiar enough with the site to trust them. But I think that exchange is really something we're going to see a lot of new ideas over the next couple of years as people figure out what do we internally as an advertiser, as a brand deem as a fair exchange versus what does the user view as a fair exchange in terms of the value that's offered to them in exchange for personal information. So that's the, it's kind of like the Substack model. So for those that don't know Substack, and I'm not an expert by any means, but if you have a newsletter, you're hosting on Substack, but it's again, that pseudo email collection so they have Substacks like the master. They're the you know the TikTok or the they that own the audience across all the subscribers, and they use that to recommend other newsletters for you to subscribe to to increase your engagement rate, subscribe rate to these different newsletters. So they're helping. You know, if we both had different newsletters, they're actually helping us build an audience just based on their halo effect. So brands moving more into the media space where supplements are an easy one. So you just think like an influencer or influencer network where they have an email list. I don't know, Liver King, like I'm thinking something like that. They have a huge audience. They have an email list, but it's connected to the site. And that's the exchange of, hey, you we're giving you a bunch of value through this content. And then we obviously know who you are as you're shopping and coming back. Do you see that as a future for, for brands as potentially getting a little bit into the media game? I think we may see that. It's unfortunate, but users may have to feel the pain of a non-personalized world for them to come back on this notion that personalization is just as much a value add to them as it is for advertisers. But I do really think we may see that. That world come back about as users are seeing less and less relevant ads in, in the space, as they're being treated more and more generically as, as they shop online. That I do believe there will be a hunger for more personalization. And uh, ultimately, at that point, it will have to be 
sort of an exchange. I think there's a lot of reasons for different brands to get into the media space. I would say as a standalone, it, it may not be enough depending on the funnel that you're working with to stand something like that up just in the name of personalization. You got to really weigh the pros and cons there and if the, the juice is worth the squeeze. But certainly for the brands at scale, I think it may make a ton of sense to get into that space solely so they can offer a value prop back to the user and better track them in the other spaces that they have a monetized touch point with that person. Yeah, I mean, there's many really amazing examples where Truvani, you know, the food babe, if you started huge audience and then that drove them into the huge brand, like just building a, a massive brand. All right, so let's let's shift gears a little bit now to we have in our notes here, losing control. So the direction of smart bidding and campaign consolidation in meta, Google ads, et cetera. Out of everything we just talked about and in, in the future, the next six to 12 months, what are you anticipating with you know smart bidding and giving the keys, handing the keys over and the budgets over to uh, to Meta and Google Ads to do their thing? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, the, the major walled gardens definitely stand in that position. As much as I think Facebook has sort of echoed this message that Apple's privacy limitations are really hurting their bottom line, in many ways, these walled gardens actually are in, a, in the best position of anybody. If you're scrolling through YouTube and authenticated, really anywhere you're authenticated, like a Facebook, a TikTok, they have a distinct advantage in terms of tracking that user, their behavior, because of the innate opt-in. They've clearly figured out the value prop, right? That folks are willing to exchange their information and remain authenticated in exchange for uh, the content that's provided through those platforms. So it does put them in an interesting position. And how much of it is true and how much of it is advantageous, the the reality is that these big walled gardens are in a position today where they can credibly say, we have a lot more data and a lot more visibility than and any individual advertiser could possibly amass. And so we're going to take the wheels. Like We're, we're going to start to make the decisions here. And I think where I anticipate we go in the next six months, in the next year, is that the advertiser's role will be really more in the way of ensuring that the platform margin doesn't take priority over their own and pulling levers, dictating budget and spend both in communication with their, their partner, so in communication with their Google rep, their Facebook rep, but especially in their action within the platform to maintain the level of control that they do ultimately have and will retain, which is how much am I willing to spend on this platform and how much visibility am I willing to give back? So I think the big thing, just to get a little bit more tactical here on this is, you know, at the beginning of my paid media career, the name of the game was get as granular as you can and make the finest grain decision that you possibly can, because if you don't, nobody will. And I think today... Um, in, in building your funnel and building campaigns and targeting down someone who viewed this page, someone who viewed a collection page, someone who added a card on this product. Yeah, absolutely. Both in, in audience and in targeting. So we, we got to a point at a certain stage of my career where we were there were campaigns for individual apps. Like we are targeting people on Words with Friends. That is a campaign. It's a funnel on its own. And functionally, it's just not possible today to, to get to that level of granularity. And so where I think advertisers need to turn to maintain some level of control, the budget piece is actually, frankly, a little bit easier if you're diligent and if you stay on top of algorithms, you know, Google algorithms, Facebook algorithms that really do make their decisions on the basis of statistical significance. Significance, you can often squeeze out more by making early decisions for them based on the visibility that you do have. So I'll give a tactical example. If you have an automated bidding strategy on Google for a given campaign, and you're seeing that there are certain components, maybe Google spending on YouTube pre-roll at a really high rate, and they're trying to get to statistical significance before they either pull it back or scale it up. If you're looking at your users on site and you can see that nobody's even adding to cart, like you aren't even seeing significant engagement from those users, you can obviously get out get out ahead of a model that's designed for general purpose and that will wait, both because Google has a marginal benefit from continuing to spend 
again until they absolutely learn and because they haven't designed the model to take into account every signal. So you can, just being diligent, I think, on the budget and sort of bid strategy level can help you really squeeze a lot out of the problem that exists today. You don't have to be setting every bid to still you know, use the human perception and use the additional data you have as a brand to make decisions. And then the other side of it, which is where I think, uh, and this isn't just to toot the L of our horn because I'm on the podcast, I think you all sit in a fascinating place is there's so much still that can be done in the manipulation of the signal you send back. And that ultimately will, will always live on the advertiser or a third party partner that they bring in to support them. We just did a test with a partner of ours where for a long time, we were really struggling with Google's bidding algorithms because often they they treat conversions as equal unless you tell them otherwise. And in just starting to segment what were ultimately, if you took the sum, it was zero sum. There were still the same conversions being sent back, the same number of conversions, but attaching different values, sometimes inflating the value of the conversions we really cared about based on the other context that we had, even beyond what the true revenue value of it was, really generated some meaningful results for us in terms of what the source of truth revenue backed into once we started to bend the machine in a way and help Google make better decisions with the signals they got back. And I think that's the part advertisers will never lose, in my opinion, is it's deciding what signals they send back to Google and applying their own business logic onto those, I think is probably the biggest opportunity for advertisers as they lose control in the really nitty gritty, which is terrible and great at the same time. It's great to have the control, but it's also highly resource intensive. It's difficult. You can make mistakes. So in many ways, automation is a benefit to the space in that in that area. But so long as we control what we tell Google is our goal, I think we still do have a decent bit of control in these platforms. So the easiest example there in DTC is if you are selling subscriptions and someone buys, the one time is $50, so subscriptions, $45. You want to potentially send LTV or whatever the number is, but that for the subscription value, if they purchase, a user purchases that instead of sending $45 because it has that 10% off, send 90 or 120 because that's what you want Google optimized towards. Yeah, that, I think that's a great example. And, and sometimes it's as straightforward as like, if you have a solid understanding of your LTV by different user tranches, for a lot of advertisers, while it's a little scary to send that data to a, a platform like Google, it is just as simple as like a, a adjusting the revenue values to better match what your true LTV is. I think for other advertisers, what we've seen, especially for those who have sort of knocked away the low-hanging fruit in a lot of these platforms, they've spent a lot. The Google algorithms have learned quite a bit on their accounts if they've been spending at scale for years. Is That next degree is model the other behavior that your users take, whether it's like in-app engagement. We did, we did a lot of work with a music subscription provider where the amount of time that somebody was spending listening to a variety of music, not just one artist, was the biggest indicator. And that didn't change the revenue that they generated from the user, but it could change the multiple that they put on that conversion to help Google better bid towards people who enjoy a diverse set of music. So the example will always be different, but I think just understanding your user and, and applying those multiples in a way that, of course, an algorithm, a generalized algorithm like a Facebook or Google will never be able to do is a step that especially advertisers at scale can really start to take advantage of. Yeah. For you uh, you SaaS folks that might be listening as well, I'm going to toot my own horn here. Two or three years ago in our own Google Ads conversion tracking, I was doing that. I was three to five Xing the conversion value for the plans that the customer types we wanted. And I remember our uh, consultant who was managing our Google Ads, he was like, what the hell? How did you know how to do this? <laughs> it's like, I don't know, but I just, I know it's, it's part, of the, part of feeding the machine, like telling them what we want more of, essentially. So I think in, in SaaS, that is also one to consider if you have a low cost SaaS, you know, if it's a $20 trial or a free trial or whatever it might be is don't just send Google $20 because if your LTV is a couple thousand, 
send more. But anyways, I won't go off on a tangent there. I'm going to go back to something you mentioned a couple minutes ago with the YouTube example. So the pre-roll and you notice people coming to the site, no one's adding to cart. What would you do? So let's let's pretend that without naming the, our mutual uh, customer, without naming names, but what would you do in that example? So if you saw a bunch of spend happening and you saw that, that traffic was not an intraday, you weren't seeing really mid-funnel performance, what are the actions that you actually, that you would take there in that scenario, in that real life scenario? Yeah, well, you know, I'll say three things. I think the first um, goes without saying often, but for a lot of advertisers, it is the piece that they're missing. And it's where, you know, our sort of core thesis lives as a company is the first thing you have to do is see it. And it may sound super simple, but we've spent a lot of cycles with the partner that you're referencing and just making sure we have either the, the API endpoints connected to where we can you know, internalize that data and model it and have a clean and real-time view on it using some of the more custom scripts that Google and GAQL, which is sort of their SQL version, allows you to reference. Establishing the bones to consistently see it is definitely the first step. Um, now, with that example specifically, there's sort of two things I would do. Um, the first is, as an advertiser, as a media buyer, often the first thing you have to do is just normalize. Like, if something that inefficient is happening, you're likely bleeding in that area. And it sounds straightforward, but um, just adjusting your budget and really scaling back the target ROAS, the target CPA that you may have set for the platform and normalizing the budget investment against that area is sort of the first mission at hand. We've made this mistake in past lives where we look at the problem and we say, oh, we get it. The problem is that we're sending the wrong signal back and we go and we spend a month working on that. But all the while, it's still happening um, and we haven't done anything to adjust the trend. And so in a lot of ways, when you break marketing down to its core, it's like very one. a lot of the decisions are very one-on-one. It's like if you're spending too much somewhere, normalize it and make sure you spend less. It's a pretty straightforward takeaway. But that is certainly for our team, the first thing that we would do. And there's a lot of ways to do that. You can change your bid strategy, you can sort of scale back the campaign budget overall, or you can try to prioritize other ads that may be serving by applying a multiplier to them. And so we'll treat this agnostically and saying maybe the first priority is just to spend less, but often that can mean spend more in other areas. And then the second would be really looking back at what signal Google was optimizing towards, either explicitly because we gave it to them or in what we call the top of the funnel. So maybe that ad was driving a ton of viewership or a, a ton of clicks. Starting to understand the Google auction and ultimately all of their, you know, when you boil it down, their algorithms are still bidding against the same auctions. Google's been really explicit about that. Facebook as well, that the bones of a Google auction, second price bidding is the exact same as it has been for the last decade plus. So looking at the signals that you have in the platform, whether it's the rate at which people are viewing the ad or the rate at which people are clicking the ad or maybe down to the conversion that you're sending back is the first place to look when something is acting way out of whack versus your business KPI. And often that explains the the situation. And so it can sometimes be about signal, but sometimes it does come back to what you're saying in the ad or the way that you're presenting the brand in the ad may be generating a lot of low intent clicks. And it's in many ways, not Google's fault, not Facebook's fault that users are highly engaged and that they're spending more in that area. And so step two would really just be trying to understand why the platform is making the decision that it is once you've sort of normalized your spend. It's more of a historical analysis than anything. And then step three could be creative. It, it could be adjusting your bidding signals for that individual campaign. There's a sort of a tree of, of decisions I think come out of that analysis that can dictate kind of where the decision making goes from there. Yeah. Are you making a lot of these decisions in real time? Real time-ish, you know, within or even intraday budget changes, 
campaign changes, creative changes, pauses, or is this more of a, you're looking at a couple days worth of data or weeks worth of data? It definitely depends on the scale of the partner. I would say for partners at high scale, certainly GA4 has, as I'm sure you all feel very closely, it's set a lot of advertisers back in terms of that intraday visibility. So I think as much as you can tap into your source of server-side events, whether that be Elevar or, or if you're tracking those events on a local database, tapping into that source and getting to real-time visibility for a brand operating at scale, I think does present a lot of opportunity to uh, avoid wasted spend. And so where we can, we certainly do that. But for a lot of our partners who are spending, I mean, at, when I say at scale, I really mean to the order of tens of millions a month even. So if you're spending a million a month against the platform a day or intraday, it may truly not be enough to really get a signal. And so it isn't the end of the world if some of those decisions are being made every couple of days. Um, I'll give this quick anecdote. And this is not a knock on a lot of the people that we've been interviewing, but we're obviously actively growing and we're, we're looking to hire. And so we've had a lot of exposure to folks who are working at traditional agencies. And I will say the typical optimization timeline is bi-weekly for a lot of folks, maybe monthly. And so if you're a brand and you're making decisions every couple of days, you're still ahead of the eight ball versus where most people are making their decisions in platform. Yeah. Interesting. You have this bullet point in our doc, how ad auctions are being impacted by user identity and why targeting limitations are pulling money out of the auction. Can you can you describe that? Yeah, it's an interesting trend. This actually goes a little bit back to what I was saying about publishers bleeding the most. So I'll give maybe a little bit more detail there. But for a lot of people who have been buying, especially in prospecting, though this is impacting retargeting quite a bit, obviously, in the ability to recognize that user at the auction level. But as the Apples of the world, the Googles of the world on their browser have really pulled back the ability to track a user over time with a high level of certainty. I think what we've seen is that the advertiser behavior hasn't changed yet. And for a lot of people, they're still using the same pixel-based audiences. They're still using the same third-party audiences. And what they don't see in the background is the match rate of those audiences has just really deteriorated over time. And so advertiser behavior is ultimately what's going to dictate the value of any given impression or any given click. And because those advertisers have really still continued to lean on audience-based targeting, for many of those advertisers, audiences that are quickly deteriorating and, and the match rates are starting to fall apart, what we see is that a lot of advertisers are exiting individual auctions because the, it's a binary. What is this my third-party target audience or is it not? Is this my first-party target audience or is it not? And obviously, in an auction with fewer advertisers, naturally, the revenue, the monetization um, for the publisher themselves starts to, to fall apart as well. And so I think in the space where we'll see this trend start to turn around is actually when advertiser behavior starts to change and really operate more contextually about the signals you can tell a user holds just by nature of where you're finding them, what time you're finding them, and maybe what behaviors or actions they're doing on that individual session. I think that will start to inject some value back into the auction. And there's still, in our opinion, a ton of value there. If a user is onwards with friends at 11 o'clock at night, and you know that they've been on there for 30 minutes, like they may be more apt to click on an ad and get out of there than somebody who just opened the app 30 seconds ago and it clearly hasn't even started their game. So there's a lot of contextual signal that isn't dependent on the user's identity that we think is still available today in auctions, just not being used by the advertiser. And hopefully that helps to turn around what has sort of been a falling out um, from the bottom of, of the value that a publisher recognizes in the space because they can only respond to what advertisers are targeting. And if they just don't know if that user falls into that category, there's very little they can do to entice advertisers back into their auctions, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. So with D2C, if we just talk D2C brands, they would just want to drive traffic back to their website. What's some in-app targeting that they can be doing that they may not be taking advantage of today? I'll give one one quick anecdote. The If you started to see, and I think it's Facebook and Instagram, they start promoting the like your saved links 
like, hey, we're going to save these links. We're going to, it's for you. It's so you can come back. And as soon as I saw that rollout, I was like, this is amazing from the, from their perspective of, okay, let me build a profile of who this user is. And obviously use that in targeting. So what is targeting or what are some examples of targeting that brands could use today that they may not be doing that's outside of their, their pixel data and any third party audience data? Yeah, well, I will say first and foremost, we are big, big proponents of contextual. And that's a term that started to, I think, grow in popularity over the last uh, four or five years, especially. But for a lot of people, the granularity at which they define something as being endemic or contextual sort of used interchangeably is just the category. So this is an entertainment website. This is a sports website. This is a sports app. And that really, we, we tested that for years and years at really high scale and weren't able to make that work. And I think that's the same story for a lot of advertisers is when bidding at that high of a level, it's difficult to really back into what you know about the user. And so they often try it, it doesn't pan out, and they've sort of set contextual aside as a strategy that's viable for their business. Like, hey, we're going to target this. Sorry to interrupt again, but just sure. just to make sure I understand what you're saying. I'm an advertiser. I pick a category that I want to target users towards. That category is essentially just too big, too macro, or it doesn't perform immediately, so then they just scrap it. Is that... Yeah. Like, and the category would be... I don't like sports, like somebody, people enjoy sports, which alone, like football and hockey or golf, very different sports. But that's essentially what you're saying is the targeting might be too broad and it just doesn't perform. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think one thing that's that's available to a lot of people, and this is specifically speaking in the programmatic sense, so you're buying on a DSP or you're buying through a partner that's accessing a DSP-like framework that taps into a bunch of different websites. There's a lot more granular metadata about what the user is doing on session. So for a lot of DSPs, you can bid on the time in session. So how long has this been user? How, has this user been on site? How long have they been on this app? Can be a really big indicator for their level of engagement and willingness to leave that experience. And it's usually a, a bell curve of sorts. So if they've just gotten to the app, they're there for a reason. And so often you aren't going to be able to pull them away. Uh, and if they've been there for quite a while, maybe they're doing something highly engaging and there's a reason why they stayed. But there is sort of a middle tranche that could make a lot of sense to put an ad in front of a user and entice them away for a moment to get to know your brand to purchase a product ultimately. So that's a big one, I think, is time on site. But there's also a lot more. I mean, a lot of these publishers are exposing metadata about individual articles. You can do keyword targeting inside of an article now. The sort of contextual world has gotten a lot more sophisticated where you can look at articles to, to maybe use your example of not just NHL, but NHL playoffs, if there's a recency bias, there, there are things like that that I think can just get a lot more tactical for advertisers. And to bring it back to where most of the money is being spent, which is inside of these walled gardens like a Google or a Facebook, where this is less of a concern, both because they don't expose that level of granularity. You can't see exactly what's posted ahead of you or below you was on Twitter, as an example. Often, I think what it comes down to in an area that people are underutilizing is they bundle up a bunch of audiences, but they don't do the work in the back end to understand the metadata of their targeting. So they may have a visibility. If they have a high level of visibility, it's ad one, two, three is performing really well for me. Ad four, five, six is performing really poorly. You can make a high level decision like that and get a, a decent bit of the way there in terms of efficiency in the platform, but sort of pulling and re-aggregating that data on the cuts of metadata, like all the audiences bundled into an individual ad group mapping that across all the ad groups that you've bought on over the past month or few months, starting to understand when an audience is present, how well an ad group is doing or how poorly it's doing can be a really good way to just more deeply understand targeting that is interest-based, that is still about the user, but has to be managed in aggregate and has to be managed kind of 
at the level that it's exposed to us. And I think that's another really big one that a lot of advertisers are missing on is the better you capture metadata about your buying activity, the better you'll be able to make decisions on it on the other side. Yeah, that one could go really deep too. Man, where to go from that one? So maybe let's touch on data enrichment. A lot of privacy we've talked about, we're going to miss data, pixels going to be lacking data, device data is going to be just non-existent unless we have walled garden approaches. Until we get to that walled garden approach where every site's like guilt group, the old guilt group at least, where you had to, had to log in to access. In the, the short term, data enrichment, you obviously know about session enrichment that Elevar does, but taking that bias out alone, where how do you see data enrichment and how does it help improve decision making or targeting or anything else that, again, you might be seeing with, uh, across your, your partners? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's sort of a couple of layers to it. I'll start on the least sophisticated side, which is sort of furthering the, the notion on metadata. We did an exercise with one of our partners where we set aside like the targeting, we set aside a lot of the, the things that were working okay, and we really keyed in on creative. I and mean, we split the creative that we were showing to users in a bunch of different components. So we tagged, I mean, we did all of this manually, like something like 80 or 90 columns of, is there a woman smiling? Is there red in the background. I've seen your UTM link. They are impressive. They are probably one of the most robust <laughs> UTM tagging that I've seen. So yeah, he's not he's not BSing here. Very, very dense. And in going through that exercise, I think at first enriching the data that you have full control of beginning to end, like from creative production all the way through to showing it to users, that, that already extracted a ton of value for us. And that has been a huge kind of connector between parts of the organization for the, the partner that, that we share and just using paid media to better inform other decisions that are being made across the business. And our bet there is that the value of paid media can be a lot more than just directly attributed revenue or directly attributed orders if it can start to dictate how the site is structured, if it can start to dictate how operations works on certain teams, it all of a sudden becomes an an engine for growth for the entire company in an area where you can spend for speed. You can spend as much money as you want if you want to move more quickly against something and learn something more quickly than just being dependent on how many users visit your site. So that's certainly one component of it. You mentioned you extracted value. So you're talking about the 80 columns, the metadata, so red, smiling, not smiling, etc. You extract a lot of value out of that data, UTM structure, performance across ads. What is that? Can you just like, what's the value you extract? Is it simply this creative, this type of creative and these attributes of the creative performance better than everything else? Or is it something something else that I might be missing? I'm glad you stopped me. That, that was certainly one that, that's worth clarifying for, for our users listening here. Well, what I really mean by value is, especially in the paid media space, but really as you're looking at any marketing funnel, if you can aggregate the results and apply them across trends more quickly. So for example, if, if instead of just having to A-B test one ad versus another, you can take attributes of all of your ads running in markets and detect commonalities. You can save a lot of money in testing. So that's already been one area for us where in being able to pull out attributes and normalize them, we can see that certain headlines or certain models featured, this is a, a D2C e-commerce partner that we're, that we're speaking to, are consistently performing above our benchmark. And it saves us from having to test each of those individual elements out in a pure AB structure. And then enrolling them back out across the account, there's certainly incremental revenue that we've been able to extract um, from our media buying. The other side of it in terms of extracting value has really been in informing the creative production process. And so that's a little bit more subjective versus objective, you know, some meaningful revenue amount. But um, in getting out ahead of our production process, and putting ads into market, our dream state is to be able to uh, do more predictive modeling on how a creative will perform before it even hits the market and spends a dollar. 
but today even just having a more conviction about a creative test before it goes live because it's been informed by data before the shoot even happened has also just helped us to get to we, we kind of have this notion of like speed to efficiency um, and how long it takes an ad before we either give up on it or we really start to see meaningful benefit and in cutting that time down to you know a few days where it used to be weeks because it's been informed by the learnings previously we've also just been able to move more quickly on our ad testing because we haven't needed to, there have been such some certain consistencies in the ad that we see as, as strong performers that we haven't needed to wait the full learning period, the full two weeks at times before an ad even has a shot against the other ads that are live in the account. So bringing this back to data enrichment, it's really just, it's under, you're breaking down. If you just think one photo, like one ad, and you're pulling out X number of attributes of that, and that you're looking at, you're analyzing that data, and then you're saying, Okay, creative team, use this in your next production shoot. Hey, you know, web experience manager, use this in your copy and email. Hey, retention manager, use this type of copy or imagery in emails because it's performing above the benchmark. So that's really what you mean by data enrichment. It's extracting insights out and putting it back in the operations and the guts of the business. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's often the reason my mind goes there. And, and when we speak to it as notice, we often go there as it's like very squarely what we control, either when we're working with partners as media buyers or in our role as more of a data modeling and marketing insights platform, where certainly the other component of data enrichment happens is obviously in tracking a user through the session and in, in understanding how to map that user back on the server side to the other attributes you may have them you may have about them. And so it's certainly not to indicate that I think there's more upside there than in other places. It's just often where we have the control. And we say I think pretty close to the advertiser where you know, if we were launching a paid media campaign for notice, we would likely come to Elevar to do a lot of the fundamental tracking. Uh, we understand our, our strengths and, uh, and our weaknesses, and then we would really focus in on that area. And so in many ways, it may apply to a lot of advertisers who are listening, because if you can um, leverage a third party for something that they are truly specialized on, you should, in my, in, my, in my personal opinion. But something like tracking the ads you're putting into market is something that can stay very close to home and that can be done as technologically automated as, as it needs to be or as manually as it needs to be. And there's still meaningful revenue to extract from your media buys in, in doing so. Well, uh, we're going to wrap this up, but do you have a do you have a lead magnet for your site that's how to build the best UTMs and how to put those to use? That would crush it. Maybe don't even uh, email Walla, just, just share it. But yeah, when I was talking to Ryan a couple of months ago and the problem you guys were experiencing was GA4 sucks at real time. We have no visibility. And I said, well, you can you can just download this from from your Elevar dashboard. So that's when I was pulling in all the UTMs, all the first touch and last touch UTMs. And I was just like, holy cow, these things are intense. And he was describing that's how you guys are, are pulling that out and put it in your machine or whatever. And that's what uh, automates a lot of the insights. So that was yeah, anyways, lead magnet. Yeah, it's a good idea, Brad, for sure. Well, what I will say, if I can shamelessly plug quickly, is one thing that we do offer via the platform is that, you know, building those without any point of reference is really difficult. And so our platform, in many ways, is designed to interpret UTM parameters, even if they don't look like ours. So our beta is completely free. If people want the cheat sheet to really dense and, uh, and advanced UTM parameters, and they don't want to go through all the manual legwork of modeling the data to join them all up, the platform's designed to do that. And so you're onto something here. We'll probably need to publish an article or a blog post like that to get some people in. Because once you've structured your UCM parameters at that granular of a level, you've now also built some work on the back end to, to actually transform it. And that's, I think, where Notice comes in to help to make that transformation process a lot easier. Well, if it's not obvious, you know your stuff. I learned a ton. I think we got 20% of the way through our, our notes doc here. But thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. How can folks listening get in touch with you? 
yeah, the easiest way would be to go to notice.io. It's got links to myself and my co-founder Ryan's LinkedIn, where, where you can certainly hear from us more directly. But the easiest way is always just to, to fill out a lead form. We usually answer within an hour or two. We're, we're always eager to talk to new folks and we love to hop on and, and hear what challenges marketers are going through. So before I hop, Brad, we'll just say thank you both for, for inviting me on, but also for making a forum for, for people passionate about the space to listen and learn more. Uh, so I'll be continuing to tune in and, and appreciate the work you're doing to bring some of the brightest minds on here. Thank you. That's notice, N-O-D-U-S dot I-O. Yep. Thank you. Awesome. Alrighty. That's a wrap. See you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Conversion Tracking Playbook. In order to help spread the word and just support the podcast, if you enjoyed this episode, share it on Twitter, share it on LinkedIn, send it to colleagues, or just send me feedback. I love reading feedback. I appreciate it. Many of the guests that have been on here, they've just emailed saying, hey, I'd love to join. Here's some topics. That could be you. Just shoot me an email or hit me up on LinkedIn. My email is brad at getelevar.com. And if you enjoy this podcast and you want to give us a rating, I would appreciate that as well. You can rate us on Spotify, Apple, wherever you are listening to this. But at the end of the day, if you could just share this and let others learn more about the world that you live in, the world that I live in with e-commerce and conversion tracking, I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.